So in, in, uh, in the year 1519, Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes landed in Mexico with a small army to conquer the Aztec Empire and to prevent his men from retreating and to ensure their commitment to the fight, Cortes ordered his ships burned, leaving his men with no choice but to conquer or die. It was a point of no return. We're now in the middle of the Gospel of Luke in, in chapter 9, which is the turning point of the Gospel. Jesus is about to have a conversation with His disciples, and this conversation that we're going to read is the turning point also in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And in three of the Gospels, this is the moment that everything changes. This is the moment when Jesus begins His journey towards the cross. This was the point of no return. So we're going to begin reading in verse 18. It says, Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with Him. This is the twelve. And He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Now I don't want to brush past the fact that Jesus was praying when He decided to ask this question. He was speaking to the Father. And so much of the ministry of Jesus was bathed in prayer. Which is, of course, an example to us. And I just wanted you to see that, that Jesus is praying before He does this, this thing that's really going to change the course of His ministry. But look at the question, who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus, of course, is Jesus. He already knows the answer to this question. So he's asking, really, as a teaching moment for the disciples. And I think that we might also ask ourselves the same question by, by phrasing it like this. What do the people outside the church say about Jesus? And that's a question that assumes that we're listening. It's a question that assumes that we care. What do our neighbors think about Jesus? What do our coworkers think about Jesus? What do our classmates think about Jesus? We should want, as Christians, we should want to know the answer to that question. Who do people say that Jesus is? Local demographics tell us a few things about how our neighbors see Jesus. Did you know that only 29% of our local neighbors, 29% strongly agree with this statement, Jesus actually rose from the dead as the Bible teaches. Only 29% believe that strongly. Only 23% of our neighbors strongly agree with this statement. 
Jesus is the only way for human salvation from sin. I mean, that's the most basic thing about the gospel that you could say. And only 23% of our neighbors strongly agree with that statement. Did you know that? Does that surprise you? Verse 19, the disciples answered, John the Baptist. Pretty matter-of-factly, that's who most people apparently think Jesus was, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. In other words, the crowds have no idea who Jesus really is. They are so confused about Jesus' identity that they think He's some sort of reincarnation of another important man. Verse 20, Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Bingo. Right? Peter nails it on the head. He gets it right. Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. And after he says this, as I'm reading, I expect Jesus to sort of congratulate Peter, right? Good job, Peter. Great answer. But Peter doesn't win any prizes. Instead, Jesus rebukes him. Verse 21, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, In English, almost every translation has chosen to say strictly charged, but everywhere else in the Gospel of Luke, the word in Greek is rebuked. So they give the right answer, but Jesus rebukes them. Why? Jesus commands them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You have to understand how shocked and confused the disciples must have been when Jesus said these words. He's giving them a prophecy about Himself and it's a, a prophecy that We take for granted because we know what's going to happen, but they didn't. And what Jesus says here seems to contradict everything that they expected from the Messiah. This is why Jesus rebuked them and commanded them not to tell anyone that He is the Christ. It's because they got the right answer, but they don't know what it means. Jesus says to them, I am who you think I am, but I'm also not who you think I am. You understand the job title, but you don't understand the job description. I'm the Christ, but you don't know what that means for me. And you also don't know what that means for you. This is a point of no return. 
And then he said to all, verse 23, not just to the twelve, but to, to everyone, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. <clears throat> so, if they were confused and shocked by verse 22, they're more confused and shocked by verse 23. This is again, as I've said before, this is like one of those slam on the brakes, wheel screeching moments in the Bible. This is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that the word cross is used. And Luke is only going to use the word cross three times. Right here. And then he's going to say the exact same thing again in chapter 14 about taking up your cross. And then the last time that Luke uses the word cross is going to be in chapter 23 at the actual crucifixion of Jesus. Now you have to understand, we, we hang crosses on the wall at church in our homes. Some of you probably have a cross hanging around your neck right now. Crucifixion was the most brutal form of execution in use at that time. To put this in perspective, I want you to consider the excitement among the disciples when Peter suggests that Jesus is the Christ. They're looking at each other like, could it be? Is Jesus really the Christ of God? Has He finally come? Is our Savior here at last? Everybody's growing excited at the prospect of, wow, this is really happening. And then Jesus just immediately bursts the bubble. I'm going to suffer and die. And if you follow me, you're going to need to suffer and die every day. And there is no other way to understand these words. They're searching for it. They're thinking, okay, this is, one of, you know, this is another one of Jesus' tricky parables, right? What do you mean by that, Jesus? It's shocking. It's pain in the belly. Shocking as the reality of what Jesus is saying sets in. And then Jesus offers three justifications for this shocking revelation. And then one promise. Verse 24, He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That is a mind-numbing paradox, okay? So if you just try to think about what this means, if you want to live, you'll have to die. It's an argument that really doesn't make much sense at this point. But the key words are, for my sake. A life lost for the sake of Jesus, is not lost. Verse 25, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So this second justification is a dilemma. Jesus is presenting us with a dilemma or a choice. 
if I choose the world, I lose myself. And so I must give up or let go of the world in order to keep myself. As I was trying to think about how to illustrate this, um, I thought of, and some of you may not be familiar with this, but the picture should make sense. It reminds me of the creature Gollum in Lord of the Rings. So whether you've read the books or you've seen the movies, in his final moments, he wins this fight with Frodo. They're fighting over a ring. And he wins by biting the ring off of Frodo's finger. But then he stumbles and falls and, and falls off the edge of a, of a cliff, basically, into a volcano. So he's plunging to his death. But while he's, follow, while he's falling into a volcano... He's not concerned about his imminent death. He's cradling the ring and holding onto it and caressing it and looking at it and smiling because he's gotten it back. And then the picture of him dying while trying to hold the ring out of the lava as he sinks into it. That is the grim picture that Jesus is begging His disciples to consider. What is the point? Why are you holding on to the world the way it is and losing yourself in the process? Do you see it? Verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of Me, And of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So in this final plea, and it is a plea, Jesus cuts straight to their deepest thoughts and feelings. He knows that his people are judging him for these words because they don't understand. In fact, it's Peter, arguably the most important disciple, who made this beautiful profession of faith that he is the Christ. But it's also Peter who seemed the most ashamed of Jesus' response. Luke doesn't tell us this, but in Matthew, this conversation takes a turn. Peter takes Jesus aside to privately rebuke Him. And the word rebuke in Matthew is the same exact word for rebuke that Jesus uses. He says to Jesus basically, hey, 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 stop all this talk about crosses and dying, Jesus. You're going to scare everybody away. And Jesus responded to Peter by saying, get behind me. Satan. That command, and it's a command, get behind me, is a military command. So he's not just saying, go away, stop bothering me. He's literally saying, fall in line. Know your place. Stay in your lane. 
And that fits with what Jesus says here in Luke, where He basically says, I want you to remember who I am. I am the Son of glory. I'm coming back in glory. I'm coming with the kingdom of God, right? Do not be ashamed of me. And in verse 27, He says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus finishes, at least, with this positive, encouraging promise. In the end, there is good news. This is going to work itself out. But what I want to do very briefly is I just want us to go back and I want us to consider more closely what is Jesus asking us to do. Okay? What is Jesus asking you to do? What's He asking me to do? He says, if you're going to be my disciple, I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Deny yourself. What does that mean? My first thought is like being on a diet and choosing not to eat that bowl of ice cream, right? Denying myself, right? Is that what Jesus wants us to do? Is He, is he asking us to just have better willpower against sin? Is He telling us to just deny those desires? Well, it's actually deeper than that, right? Because He doesn't just say deny sin. He says literally deny yourself. Jesus is going to use that exact same word, deny, later in the Gospel when He tells Peter that He's going to deny Jesus three times. Same exact word. And what happens? What is He saying is going to happen? He's saying, Peter, there's going to be a moment where you're going to turn from Me and run. The same man that was the first to profess Jesus as the Messiah is going to turn from Jesus and run. Now, of course, the good news is that Jesus forgave Peter and restored Peter. We'll read all about that. But that event tells us something about what Jesus means by the word deny. Jesus wants us not to turn and run from Him, but to turn and run from ourselves. Why? Because sin is not out there. Sin is in here. It lives in our hearts. And the devil doesn't make us do it. We don't get to blame our sin on our circumstances. We don't get to blame it on our friends. We don't get to blame it on our childhood experiences. It's here. Because sin is not just the bad stuff that we do, it's a condition. Sometimes it looks like self-gratification. Indulging in the pleasures of the flesh, or however you want to put it. But it, sometimes it looks like self-sufficiency. Believing that we're good enough, that we're better, that we're 
that we're okay. That we don't need help. But in either case, the key word is self. The exact thing that Jesus is asking us to deny. Being humbled is being brought to the end of yourself and to the beginning of Jesus. And that's what he means, I think, by deny yourself. What about take up your cross? As I said earlier, a cross to us is a this beautiful symbol of our faith because it reminds us of what Jesus did. But again, a cross to a first century Jewish person was pain and death. Everyone had publicly seen someone carrying a cross. And it was not a noble thing. It was a shameful thing. It meant you were a criminal or an enemy of the state. And so Jesus telling us to do this is a, is a really great way to test the resolve of His disciples. Even if Jesus meant this as a metaphor, it would have been shocking because of what it represented. And the truth is, many of Jesus' followers would in fact literally die on a cross for their faith. But for, for all of us, I think it means this. I believe that taking up our cross is turning from the world to follow Jesus. Okay, so the first part, deny yourself, that's turning from my own sin to follow Jesus. Taking up your cross is turning from the world to follow Jesus, and very often doing so is going to feel like a painful, shameful walk. Why? Because the world has no love for the kingdom of God. It will not honor those of us who reject selfish ambition for the sake of Jesus. The world will reject us. It will try to destroy us. But according to Jesus, only in this kind of death will we find life. And Jesus wants us to experience life in the kingdom of God. He, he wants us to be part of this, but there's only one way. He says you must take up your cross. Finally, what does Jesus mean when He says, follow me? Now this may sound like the easiest one to understand, but it's a little more complicated than we think. In part, it means this. Don't get ahead of Jesus. Because behind Jesus is the only safe place to be. In other words, Jesus, our leader, had to go before us. He must always go first. I thought a great illustration of this was Harriet Tubman. So if you know, uh, some of you students may be learning about Harriet Tubman this month, right? She the, was the conductor of the Underground Railroad. You know, she led hundreds of slaves to freedom. But they had to follow her. 
What did that mean? It meant she knows the way. She knows the landscape. She knows the waterways. She knows who is on their side and who's not. She knows the escape routes. And they did not. Which meant they were at the mercy of her leadership. They had to trust her to lead them to freedom. In other words, she didn't just kind of stand at the boundary and point the right direction. She didn't even give them a a list of detailed instructions about how to get there. She actually led them at great danger to herself multiple times. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. We trust Him to lead the way to salvation. We don't make our own way to salvation. Jesus doesn't just kind of point us in the right direction and say, good luck. We literally follow Him from beginning to end. And the Gospel of Luke is setting the stage for this to show us that Jesus had to go to the cross... He had to be raised from the dead. That Jesus will be the first to actually deny Himself. He will be the first to carry His cross. And then He would be the first to rise from the dead. Following Jesus is simply falling in line behind Him. Trusting Him. Trusting His provision, not your own. Trusting His plans, not your own. Trusting His providence. We begin to trust our Savior with everything. We surrender our lives to Him. And this is the key point. Brothers and sisters, it often feels like death before it feels like life. Let's pray. Wonderful, merciful Savior, we thank You for what You have done for us and for what You've called us to. The path is difficult because only really because of our sin and because of the world that has rejected You. But You have promised to go before us. You have already done so. And You go with us. Even behind us, Your Spirit is. And so we go in faith. We ask You, Lord Jesus, to help us to understand more and more each day what it means to live in Your kingdom, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow You. We need Your grace. We need You to lead us. Help us to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.